face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello and welcome to episode six of the Policy Dialogue series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national, and international challenges we face. We are recording this on October 27, 2020. My name is Evan Papp and I graduated with the class of 2011 to focus on international security and economic policy. And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which distributes content on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. I'm very excited to speak with Eric Lutke, and we will be discussing policy leadership in state government. Eric is an associate clinical professor at the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland College Park and serves as director of the school's state and local governance initiative. He has served as an elected member of the Maryland House of Delegates since 2011. He currently serves as House Majority Leader and has served in a variety of legislative leadership roles in the past, including as chair of the Education Subcommittee and of the House Democratic Caucus. Eric, thank you for joining us on the Policy Dialogue Series. Thanks for having me, Evan. I appreciate the invitation. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you first got interested in policy and why others should care about public policy? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm a local. I grew up in Maryland. Uh, I went to the University of Maryland for undergrad and finished my BA in, in 2002 in government and politics because there was no undergraduate major in public policy at the time. Um, and then came back to the university for a teaching degree. I got my master's in education in 04, and I taught uh, middle school social studies for 11 years. Um, and as I was teaching, I, I became really involved in, in advocacy. I'd actually, um, my mom had been involved in the women's uh, movement back in the 60s and 70s. So she kind of raised me to pay attention to policy and politics. Um, and then in high school, I got involved in environmental advocacy with a, a student environmental organization called the Sierra Student Coalition and was trained as an organizer through them. Um, so by the time I became a teacher, I got kind of recruited into being involved with the teachers union in my county because they wanted people who had some experience with politics and policy. And so I came, I came at policy very much through the advocacy angle. Um, and then in uh, 2010, uh, two seats opened up in the legislative district. In Maryland, we have multi-member legislative districts for our state legislature. And two seats opened up and I took a shot and ran and you know state legislatures local government state government can still be shoe leather campaigns so I, uh, I knocked on a ton of doors and got elected and um, and kept teaching as a middle school teacher after I was elected because we have a part-time legislature in Maryland uh, but a few years in I kind of started to feel like there were gaps in my academic training that um, meant that I, I wasn't as effective as I wanted to be as a legislator um, so I came back to the university uh, to work on a PhD, which I'm, I'm still working on. I'm on the slow road on that one. Um, but uh, particularly economics and statistics were areas where I, I didn't have deep training as an undergrad. And um, so I came back to work on that and then, you know, got to teaching uh, first as a, a graduate assistant and then a, a teach, a, 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 an adjunct lecturer and then uh, as a clinical professor with the school. So brought it full circle. 
Wow, a lot of lot of depth there. And now you're currently the majority leader of the house, so that's a a very important position, obviously. Um, but before going into that, can you talk a little bit about your experience of being in a union? Uh, I obviously uh, went to public school myself, and unions were very important in making sure that the teachers were represented and the schools were well resourced. But a lot of people aren't aware of the function of unions. So I would love to hear um, how, how that experience was. Sure. I mean, I, I didn't grow up in a union environment. Neither of my parents had ever been members of, of unions. My grandfather had been. He was a railroad worker. But, um, but I didn't know a whole lot about unions. And um, so, you know, in a state like Maryland, the, the vast majority of the teaching workforce is unionized. They're members of, of the, the uh, teachers' unions. Um, and, um, you know, they, they play a really important role in society uh, in the sense that they, they give workers the ability to uh, bargain not only over what we think of as traditional union issues like uh, wages, hours, and conditions, but in the case, for example, of teachers unions, teachers unions are some of the biggest advocates for education, right, and for kids. Um, and that's, that's what really engaged me heavily um, uh, first starting out. I mean, I did, as I was active with my union, get involved in some of the traditional collective bargaining uh, components of, of, of union work. But a lot of the work we did was advocacy around things that would benefit kids and their families. So, for example, um, one of the first issues I got involved in when I got involved with the union, uh, I taught in a school that, that was uh, very high poverty um, and majority immigrant. Um, uh, more than 60 percent of our students uh, were uh, uh, either immigrants or the children of immigrants. And, um, you know, one of the big challenges that their families faced economically was access to English language instruction, right? Because if you're, you know, an adult in the workforce, uh, in, particularly in the United States, but even in other countries, um, being fluent in English is a vital job skill that, that will uh, help you economically, right? Um, so we began advocating for uh, increased funding for uh, adult education classes, uh, ESOL classes, um, which was not something that came through the school system. I mean, this was, we were advocating for money to go to another government department because it would benefit our kids, right? Um, so, I mean, I see, I, I see unions as absolutely vital in society, right? Um, and, uh, and it was certainly a very good opportunity for me to get to know a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds who I really wouldn't have interacted with necessarily otherwise. Very cool. The interplay between policy and politics, I, I think they're, you can't really take them apart. Um, I think they're, they're hand, in, hand in glove. And can you talk a bit about your experience in Annapolis as a delegate and as a majority leader? Uh, a lot of people may have no experience in um, state capital politics and even trying to implement uh, policies. And you, you can be general or uh, more specific to Maryland as well. And I, I'm just curious about, about that experience. Yeah, I mean, I'll do both. I, look, I, um, I, I love being in the state legislature. I absolutely love it. Um, you know, people will ask anybody who's in elected office, they'll ask you, hey, when are you going to run for Congress? When are you going to run for governor? Um, I, I, nothing, no, I don't want to throw shade on Congress at all, but I wouldn't be caught dead running for Congress. Um, and, and the main reason is that the, the uh, first of all, the partisanship that we often see on the Hill is less present in a lot of state legislatures than it is on the Hill. 
Um, and so, you know, one of the, I came in, I, I, you know, I had a background in, in Democratic Party politics, and I came into the legislature as, you know, a, fair, a fairly partisan person, and I certainly have very strong opinions. What I, what I learned uh, pretty quickly in Annapolis was that regardless of what side of the aisle people are from, they're there because they care about their constituents and they want to make a difference. And, you know, despite what gets sometimes reported in the press, 90% uh, or more of the work that we do in Annapolis is entirely nonpartisan. It's not so much about the politics. It really is about what's the best policy. What's the best policy that we can enact and implement for the people of Maryland? Um, and I think, you know, you, you talk to state legislators in other states and they, and they feel very much the same. Um, you know, it's, it, there's a, a famous quote from a, a Supreme Court opinion, uh, I believe, that uh, state legislatures are the laboratories of democracy. Um, because, you know, all the great ideas that Congress eventually implements, at some point they came out of one of the states, right? So we do a tremendous amount of policy innovation. And, and me as an elected official, you know, I, I, I serve as majority leader, which is a, a, a political position, right? It's my job to be uh, w one of the spokespeople for Democrats in the Maryland legislature. Um, but, you know, from a policy perspective, I get to work with people on a huge range of issues, right? So I, I'm in the process right now of getting legislation ready for our next legislative session, which starts in January. And I've got bills on expanding access to broadband, uh, dealing with invasive plants and their impacts on the environment, um, reforming our juvenile services education system. Uh, I chair the revenue subcommittee now, so a number of tax-related bills. I mean, I get to touch a lot of different areas of policy. And that's, you know, for a policy nerd like me, like that's, it's, it's, it's bliss. I love it. Um, the majority leader job, I, I was just uh, uh, asked to be majority leader by our current speaker, Adrian Jones, uh, this past uh, fall. So I'm, I'm only a year into it. Um, it, it's, it, it gives me uh, that much more ability to be involved with the work of leadership with the speaker and, and the committee chairs as they develop policy. And so, for example, I was deeply involved in developing uh, a big education reform bill we passed this year called the Blueprint for Maryland's Future. And that, so it, it's been incredibly rewarding having an opportunity to, to fill that role. I absolutely agree with the, the concept of states being the experiments. Uh, I, I guess like things that you can experiment a lot of different policies. So for instance, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was governor of New York, and he was implementing a lot of the unemployment work and public mm -hmm. work spending in New York as governor before he right. became president. And he brought in Harry Hopkins and some of his other staff to, to do that, uh, which revolutionized the entire country with the New Deal. Yeah, I mean, another great example, people forget now, but, but uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, a lot of the ideas in that came out of the states and they came out of programs like the program Mitt Romney implemented when he was governor of Massachusetts, right? Um, you know, so I, it really does have a way of trickling up and the states kind of play off each other, right? A state will come up with an idea and another state will riff off that policy idea and it'll kind of bounce around the country and, and eventually end up, you know, as national policy. How do you feel about the part-time nature? Uh, I'm, I know it's a full-time job, but you're in session from January till about April, May, I believe. Yeah, uh, and could you talk a little bit about the challenges with that? It seems, I mean, you're working now as you, you just came off a meeting before joining, joining me here, but could you talk a little bit about that session? Because it seems like 
so much is going on and then COVID happens and mm -hmm. then no one's there except for the governor executing. So, yeah, I mean, so in a, in, in a regular session, if it's such a thing, um, you know, we're in for 90 days under the state constitution and it's a boiler room. I mean, we are working hard for 90 days. It's a lot more than a 40 hour a week job during session. Um, outside of session, you know, I probably spend in any normal year, 10 to 20 hours a week on legislative work outside of session. So it, it's, it's more than full or more than uh, part time, not quite full time, you know, maybe. Um, I, the, the, there are a number of states that have full time legislatures. And I think, you know, there's, it's, it's kind of a grass is always greener thing. Full time legislators obviously can focus that much more attention on the job because they don't have to get another job. Uh, on the other hand, I think there is some benefit to us having other jobs. We don't live inside the political bubble all the time. We, we interact with constituents on a daily basis in a way that we might not if we were in Annapolis all the time. Um, you know, this year has been very different, obviously, uh, as it has in every area of society. And, and we actually had to end our, our legislative session early this, this past um, March uh, for the first time since the Civil War. Um, and, you know, in the interim, since session ended, I've been busier than I ever have been. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, policy development work and oversight work over everything that's going on in state government responding to COVID. But a lot of it's also constituent service, right? I mean, I, thousands of constituents who needed help accessing unemployment benefits or small business grants or utility or rental assistance, whatever it was, right? Um, and, uh, and that's, so that's kept us very busy. Um, but, you know, we're gearing up now for the legislative session in January. And, um, you know, I think um, it, it, you get into this kind of cycle through the year, right? Where, you know, you kind of focus on different things at different points in the year. And I, I, I'm getting to the point, I'm getting excited about session in January, about some of the ideas we're talking about. So one of the ballot initiatives on for for Maryland State is a balanced budget initiative, I believe, where the um, the House or the, the delegates need to follow the budget of the governor. Um, maybe I'm I'm mixing it up a little bit, but could you explain a little bit about uh, the intention of this this initiative? Sure, sure, no problem. And let me take a step back and first say one of the reasons I love. I, I mean, I don't just do state political systems and policy as a legislator, I, I work on those issues, I research those issues, and I, I help run the school state and local governance initiative. One of the reasons I love state and local policy is there's such a diversity in the states and in localities of how things get done, right? Every legislature is different. Every state has a different constitution that has different provisions. We've got a state in the United States that, that operates a legal system under the Napoleonic law, right? Louisiana's legal system is still rooted in Napoleonic law. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating the, the differences, right? Um, uh, in Maryland is unique in our budget process. Way back in the early 1900s, our state legislature at the time uh, would just pass funding bills for different programs but didn't have like a single budget where they looked at everything together and made sure that the, the budget was balanced, right? So they just kind of passed a bunch of bills and they started to get to the point where they were passing uh, more funding than the state could actually provide. And so the constitution was altered and uh, the, we still operate under that provision from hundred years ago, which says when the governor proposes a budget, 
the legislature, not only can we not increase spending over what the governor has proposed, but we can't move money around within departments. So we can't say, for example, during COVID, hey, this program over here, you know, we can take some money from that and spend it on healthcare, right? Because we're not allowed to do that under the state constitution. So what ballot question one does is it, it tries to change that a little bit. It still maintains the requirement that we cannot increase the budget over the governor's allocation, but we would be allowed to move money around between departments and programs. It also grants the governor a line item veto, which he doesn't have right now. Now, it's controversial, right? Um, uh, I, I'm a Democrat, I voted for it, members of my party voted for it. Uh, the governor who's a Republican opposes it as do the Republican uh, leadership in, in both houses of the legislature. Why, why is that if he can veto, it would seem to give the governor more power unless there's a plan that, you know, the, the governor is gonna be switched from Republican to Democrat. Or... Yeah, I mean, I, the, I think the, the argument that he's making and that members of the minority party in the legislature have been making is that um, Maryland actually does a really good job in terms of fiscal policy. I mean, we've had a AAA bond rating for decades, right? Um, and their argument is why mess with success, basically. Um, you know, things have been going well from a fiscal policy perspective, so why, why change it? Um, you know, I personally disagree with that, but it's, it's one of those policy arguments where from an academic perspective, from a policy perspective, there are two sides, right? Um, and, and, and that's one of the things that, you know, it, it's interesting being majority leader and a spokesman for the Democratic Party, but also an academic because I'm trained as an academic to be more neutral and to the reality is on most issues, there are two sides to the argument, right? Um, and, you know, that's recognizing that and respecting the other side of the argument, I think is something that we've lost a little bit in our national politics to our detriment as a society. Yeah. To talk a little bit about the, the budget of Maryland and I guess state budgets in general, Unlike the federal government that has the ability to create credit through the Federal Reserve System and we can run uh, massive deficits uh, through floating bonds and things like that, state governments are much, they, they can be targeted much easier with, by these credit rating agencies if they do go above their, their budget and go into the red. And I guess if Maryland was to spend in, in a deficit, they would have to then sell bonds at that time? Or how, how would that even work exactly? We couldn't do it. Actually, yeah. no state in America can. Because we have, every state in America has constitutional or legal provisions that require a balanced budget. Um, so, you know, we can't deficit spend like the feds can. Um, and that puts us in a real bind when it comes to a situation like we have now with COVID, right? Um, at the same time that uh, uh, individual families have been suffering as a result of the economic uh, impacts of COVID and businesses have been suffering. Uh, state governments and local governments have too because revenues have declined and at the same time we're spending more, right? So all the money we're putting into testing and PPE and, and all of these safety programs has to come from somewhere. Um, so, you know, we're, we're finding places in the budget we can pull money from. Most states have what's called a rainy day fund that they can rely on in emergency situations. Um, and longer term, you know, we've seen decreases, particularly in our sales and use tax revenue, which is a major source of revenue for most states in America uh, and some localities as well. Um, so, you know, it's going to be a tough couple of years for state and local budgets. Um, 
you know, one of the concerns that a lot of economists have uh, is that we saw a phenomenon during the Great Recession where um, we had a similar situation where state and local revenues were in trouble. Um, and there was not a significant bailout from the federal government and state and local governments started laying people off, right? Which makes, I mean, businesses do the same thing. When you hit tough times, you have to reduce your workforce. Um, but those layoffs, uh, a lot of economists argue, actually extended the length of the Great Recession. They made it harder for us to get back to where we, we, we had been before the recession. Um, and so I think that that's one of the components of the conversation that's going on uh, about a, another stimulus package from Congress. Um, uh, most state leaders, Republican and Democrat, argue that Congress needs to implement a, another stimulus package that includes significant funding to help states uh, and localities. And, you know, some of our state and local institutions like higher ed, right, because our, our universities are also taking a revenue head. So, you know, it sort of trickles all the way down. Yeah, it, my understanding and all of my research, I've never seen austerity actually expand the economy. It, whenever a government goes into austerity, it, it always contracts the economy and it has this spiral of, uh, of deflation almost. And I, I think what's so criminal right now as well is the current Senate majority leader is saying, let the states go bankrupt. And let and it's I think between 250 and 500 billion dollars would at least allow the states to become liquid and not have to go through a lot of these austere measures and I think a part of that reason reasoning behind the Senate is that the state's public worker public uh, sector is I think almost 30 percent unionized private sector is under 10 percent and it's a way to also reduce the unions of fire departments and police officers and teachers unions and things like that to kind of break the back of uh, public sector workers. So it's yeah, it's pretty I, don't, I don't know if yeah. I don't know if that argument's going to be politically sustainable in the in the Senate, right? I think um, you know a lot of states are still riding high on some money we got under the CARES Act, the first major stimulus, right? Um, and that's kept a lot of states afloat, um, but. You know, this winter, it's going to start getting to be really tough times for a lot of states because that CARES Act money is running out. Um, you know, we're seeing this, this new wave of COVID hit, particularly across the Midwest and the upper Midwest and, and relatively conservative states. Um, and, um, and, you know, it's, it's going to get bad. It's going to get worse before it gets better for a lot of states. I think the pressure is going to grow on Congress significantly. Um, but yeah, I mean, the economics of it is pretty straightforward. It's, it's a question of demand, right? I mean, the, there's, governments put money in the economy. When governments stop putting money in the economy, the economy shrinks. It's really that simple, right? And, um, and that's true whether it's the federal level or the state. And I'm not someone who believes that debts don't matter and deficits don't matter. I do believe that at a certain, certain point, if the U.S. can't get people to buy our bonds, our treasury bonds, there, we're gonna have a major problem. And sure. I think with sure. China being a major competitor, trying to get the renminbi to compete as an international reserve currency with the dollar. But the point is you need to grow your economy so that your debt is no longer such a large percentage of servicing uh, the rest of the economy. Right. So if you can grow from a $20 trillion economy into a $40 trillion economy, then your debt of what is it, 28 trillion right now and the servicing of that goes way down. And so you got to figure out how to grow the economy 
through investments and in infrastructure, you know, space, the Apollo program had 10 to one returns on everything from internet to uh, communications and, and other things as well. Well, and it gave us Tang and that <laughs> maybe one of the greatest inventions. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I think, I mean, there's a larger problem with federal budgeting, right? Um, you know, we, we spend too much, we don't have enough revenue. I mean, that's a long-term issue, I think, um, that needs more attention than it's, than it's gotten the last couple of decades. But, um, you know, right now we're in a crisis and it's a crisis unlike any crisis we've seen for a hundred years. Um, the, the spike we saw in unemployment is unlike anything we've ever seen in history. When states shut down to try to try to uh, uh, keep COVID under control, um, so those economic impacts. I mean, I, this is this is not, I think, a time for anyone to be playing political games, right? It's a question of how do we, as a country, get out of this in the best way, and and states and localities have to be part of that conversation. And before getting back into the state of Maryland, the Federal Reserve System has lent out, I think, over six trillion dollars uh, mm -hmm. since. It, since last October 2019. So a lot of people think that the, this whole collapse started happening right around COVID. There was major problems with the sure. overnight lending last September in the what's called the repo market. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the Fed started injecting $200 billion a day in overnight loans. And it's been like most of the Federal Reserve operations, not very transparent. But the point is, if you can just issue credit to six trillion in the Federal Reserve and you can capitalize and buy corporate bonds and all these other things. You can't buy state bonds. Um, it's, it's crazy. And I think going into this, hopefully from my political perspective, a new administration, we're gonna have a new deal investment that the Federal Reserve issues 100 year bonds at near 0% to rebuild our entire infrastructure, uh, to make sure that all our municipal drinking water systems are no longer um, allowing lead and arsenic and these other type of things that are starting to come through, making sure schools are rebuilt and hospitals and something like a works progress administration that we saw in the 1930s last time we came to such a um, economic crisis as we have today. Right, right, so, absolutely. So looking at Maryland then to try to focus on some investments here, I'm, I'm a Marylander myself. I live near the Purple Line. I've relied on public transportation to get into Washington, D.C. Um, I love the metro, even though it hasn't, it, it keeps, there, there's a lot of problems with the D.C. metro, Maryland, uh, Virginia metro service. What are your thoughts about improving surface transportation in Maryland? And I'm going to specifically, I, I just want to hear your thoughts on the Purple Line, uh, expanding MARC train services, this D.C. Uh, maglev construction, and like, expanding the automobile lanes in I-270 during that, in that huge bottleneck because DC has terrible traffic. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, the 270, 495 um, lane addition issue, I, I don't think will do much to solve our traffic, traffic problems. Uh, adding lanes, I mean, you know, we've known for a while about the law of induced demand, right? Uh, you, you add more lanes, you're going to get more cars and it's going to fill right back up again, right? Um, now, I think there's some interesting proposals about how you manage the lanes, for example, particularly on 270, where you could turn some of the lanes into reversible lanes um, because so much of the traffic on 270 is rush hour, right? Um, so you can manage that. Um, you know, the state of Maryland and uh, to a lesser extent the region, but the state in particular has, has historically underinvested in transit. 
Um, the metro system is, is an exception to that rule, right? It is a gem. Um, and there aren't that many major metropolitan areas that have a system like metro. There really aren't. Um, although, you know, some other parts of the country are starting to catch up a little bit, although they're doing more light rail than heavy rail these days. Um, you know, I, I think Metro is in a better situation than it was a couple of years ago. Uh, all three of the, the compact jurisdictions, Maryland, Virginia, and DC, have stepped up with funding commitments, ongoing funding commitments that have helped stabilize Metro's finances. Um, they still have work to do in terms of expanding service. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's going to be an ongoing effort. Um, the purple line, which for those who aren't familiar, is a, is a new transit line that's being built, a light rail line to connect um, uh, Bethesda in Montgomery County, which is the largest jurisdiction by population in Maryland, with New Carrollton in Prince George's County, which is the second largest, um, sort of a, a connecting suburb to suburb, because the metro system is very much focused on the old style commuting into the city concept. Um, and the Purple Line was built under, uh, or is being built under a public-private partnership and that public-private partnership has uh, collapsed um, with the, the private company that was in charge of building it, pulling out of the deal. Um, you know, right now the, the state and, and the companies, uh, the, the Purple Line partners, the company involved, um, are still engaged in negotiations. You know, hopefully they come up with a settlement that allows construction to continue. In the meantime, the state of Maryland has uh, taken over uh, overseeing some of the subcontracts, um, but it's gonna delay construction of the Purple Line, which, you know, we've been fighting to get that thing built for 30 years um, and it's long overdue. There was a- um, and There's like stranded assets and right. infrastructure right. all over where I'm at at Kenilworth and, you know, going towards University of Maryland as well. Sure. And, and you've got, and that's important too, right? There are supposed to be what, three stops or four stops in, in, in the university? Yeah, right Maryland. around there, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there was a quote in the paper, so this big Ethiopian immigrant population in the DC area, and there was a quote in the paper from an Ethiopian, uh, uh, a business owner of Ethiopian descent. Um, and he said, look, this is the kind of thing I would expect in Ethiopia, but not here, right? Because these businesses that are right along the right of way are being affected. So, you know, I, it's frustrating. And I, I got to say, I'm usually very critical of public-private partnerships, but I'm sympathetic with the cost overruns because they were generated from a judge's injunction mm -hmm. from an environmental group that I would say pseudo-environmental group because they, I, I think public transit gets cars off the road and they used environmental argument to say, we don't want this in our backyard. And I thought it was much more of a NIMBY argument than a environmental argument and they found a libertarian uh, type judge who said, well, let's stop it. And uh, I get a year and a half, you know, delays and things like that. Yeah. that could, yeah. Was one yeah, of the main I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, I don't think we should be building public infrastructure with public private partnerships anyway. I think there's a lot of risk there that people don't appreciate. Um, and, you know, that, but that is what it is, right? I, I think a lot of states are experimenting with different public private partnerships, but, you know, I think, the, the, the challenges that the Purple Line public-private partnership is facing have made it uh, much harder for the Hogan administration to do the public-private partnership they want to on 270 and 495. Um, but look, you know, the other aspect of this is this conversation so far is entirely about the DC metro area um, and the other major metro area in Maryland, the Baltimore metro area, has even bigger transit challenges than we do in the DC area, right? I mean, the 
When the Baltimore Metro system was originally conceived, it was supposed to have, I think, six lines. One of them got built, only one. Um, and there was another line that was gonna be built, the red line that was canceled by the Hogan administration when it came in. Um, you know, I, I think one of the most important things we can do for Baltimore City to help it, because it's a, a city that struggled, is to build out a transit system. Um, and you know, that's not happening right now. So, you know, I, I, we, we, at this point, you know, a lot of us are kind of hoping for deus ex machina. We're kind of hoping that the feds come in with big infrastructure spending to address the recession and that we can use some of that to build some of these projects. And those would be jobs and it would be construction jobs and they would be right here in Maryland. And that mm -hmm. canceling of the red line, I know some people who are working on doing all of the assessments for years and it was right at the point of starting and Hogan somehow was able to pull the plug, um, which is, I think, tragic, but you know, we're, there's still hope in the future. And the fact that we're a major capital in the, in the world and we don't even have a, a ring uh, transit right. with our metro. I mean, I, I spent a little time in Japan. I've spent some time in Europe. Uh, I mean, every city is just incredible uh, transit and America, come on. We, we have almost, we have no high speed rail. They're trying to build it in California. China just built, I think, 15,000 or 20,000 kilometers in the last mm -hmm. 10 years of high speed rail. So if we want to compete, we got to start thinking about these type of things. So, yeah, we're just, we're just not making the type of transportation investments we need to as a country. I mean, and not just transportation, it's infrastructure generally. We're behind the curve on broadband access. Uh, we're behind the curve on uh, Wi-Fi access and, and the rollout of 5G technology. I mean, it, it's, it's a real problem for us economically um, we just won't be able to compete if, yeah. we, if we don't make those kinds of investments. Um, and it, it runs the gamut. I mean, it's from the federal government, the states, localities, everyone's underfunded. Absolutely. And I know the maglev, uh, there's a lot of um, critiques on it. I personally am a huge fan of maglev technology. I, I think it can produce a lot of jobs. We can have, um, it's high tech, it's engineering. We could eventually get it to a point where after Japan teaches us how to build trains again, even though we sent them the Baldwin locomotive, you know, 140 years ago, <laughs> being able to get it all the way up to Boston and getting it to Cleveland so I can go see my mom, you know, in a couple hours. And uh, these trains too, at 300 miles an hour, eventually you can get them in a vacuum tube and have them go 600 miles an hour. And so this technology already exists. And it would create a lot of jobs and I think we get exported as well. So there's, there's that. But I do know a lot of my friends uh, who are politically active in the Greenbelt area um, are actually against it because of environmental arguments that it's gonna be going through some, some preserved uh, areas. But I, I am just curious to put you on the spot one way or the other, what's your view on that? I mean, I like the technology. I think there are two big challenges for us to figure out. One is that that routing question, right? Um, because you know, it, it's. I think there are ways to build it, places to build it that will not have the impact as as uh, that you know some of your friends in Greenbelt or some of the folks in in Western Anne Arundel County are worried about. Um, uh, the other issue is it's expensive, right? So just the you know just the ballpark quotes on just Washington, D.C. to Baltimore, um, you're talking billions of dollars. That's like 12 or something like that. Yeah, and the Japanese government had said they'd be willing to pony up like half of it or something. Yeah, I think like seven, seven or right. eight, to get us a little taste. So. Yeah. And we even, still have to build it much further. Right. 
but even three, $4 billion, what's left there, like the state cannot afford that. Like that's, that is, that's half our transportation trust fund, right? For the entire state. So, you know, it, it'd be something where we really would need federal support. And, you know, the big infrastructure advancements in American history came in part as a result of federal support. I mean, look at the interstate highway system, for example, right? Um, and, you know, our, our, uh, our ports and the dredging in the Mississippi River, right? I mean, the Connell Railroad, it was the yeah, first one in the world. Yes, absolutely. I mean, these are federal investments. They're big enough that we need the federal government engaged. States alone, unless they're really big states like California or Texas or New York, um, we can't afford that. Yeah, and even California, I mean, stumbled right? hard on it. So. so in closing, looking into the future of state politics in Maryland and beyond, where do you see opportunity and hope? I, I look, I think state politics and state government, uh, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. Um, and I have a lot of hope. Um, and that's because you've seen over the last uh, eight or 10 years, a, 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 a changing of the guard in a lot of states, um, huge turnovers in the makeup of state legislative bodies, um, where the uh, legislators that are serving now are younger, much more diverse, uh, many more women, uh, than just a few years ago in many states. Uh, for the first time, we have a legislative body in the U.S., the Nevada Senate, I believe, that's majority women. Um, and, you know, I think that reflects sort of where the country's going. These folks are going to be your next members of Congress and cabinet secretaries and presidents. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's not just a question of the states being laboratories of democracy for ideas. Uh, they're producing the leaders of tomorrow. Um, so I, I'm excited to see where the country's going to go in the next 10 years, actually. I know a lot of people are very down right now, um, but we have some brilliant people that are doing brilliant work every single day in state legislatures, and they're going to be our next national leaders, and it's going to revolutionize America. 